When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following episode was originally recorded for the What If Football Patreon page. If you like what you hear on this following podcast, then please feel free to subscribe to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash what if football from £1 a month for five days a week bonus podcasts. Some games are good, some games are bad, some games are alright, some games ascend to greatness. Whether it's a personal story, a cup final, a nail-biter, or a 14-goal humdinger, every game has a great story. I am Jake from What If Football, I thank you, of course, for donating to our Patreon page, and this is The Great Games Podcast, episode 12, and with it being an international break, we've got to take a look at a classic qualifier of years gone by, England versus Greece from 2002 with a classic moment at the end of it. Let's get stuck in. Quick reminder that we are on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash what if football, five days a week with nostalgic podcasts like these, the great games on Tuesdays, head to head on Wednesdays, mailbag full of your great what if suggestions, your alternate football universe on Thursdays and previewing and reviewing the current football action on a weekday, Friday and Monday, of course, if you enjoy these podcasts, we're on the Sports Social Podcast Network, we're a production of that three days a week, ranked on a Tuesday, no, it's nostalgia on a Wednesday, as you know, and the Barclays on a Friday. So with that out of the way, where are England in 2001? How did they get to 2001 from the heady days of the semi-final at Wembley? With Terry Venables. So Terry Venables, he had to leave as England manager because he was just too busy 
with uh, legal stuff. So it meant Glenn Hoddle, Glenn Hoddle, a capable manager in charge of the England team. And um, you could say that he made brave decisions. Some might say he made the wrong decisions. Paul Gascoigne was cut before the tournament playing uh, Kenny G in the uh, in the uh, meeting with him, um, which didn't uh, go down to soothe the atmosphere quite so well. And obviously after a memorable night in Rome, drawing 0-0 with Italy, England had qualified for the World Cup. Obviously another one of those brave yet maybe wrong decisions was uh, David Beckham not getting a start at that World Cup until the Columbia game, the final group game of the World Cup. Obviously England had got off to a flyer against Tunisia. Paul Scholes scoring a fantastic goal there, lost to Romania though. Andy Wood scores first ever England goal, scoring a free kick, sign of things to come. To get England through and they would face Argentina, having lost the uh, group, finishing second. Michael Owen, of course, would score a world-class goal against Argentina, but a combination of Simeone getting Beckham sent off a superb, worked, well-worked free kick from Argentina, I think gets lost uh, to the annals of time. You've got Sol Campbell's disallowed goal, and of course, of course, of course, of course, penalties at St Etienne. England were dumped out of the last 16 and then moved on under Kevin Keegan, who was on commentary with Brian Moore for ITV. In that match, he takes charge after some quite unsavoury comments by Glenn Hoddle um, a few months later. And Kevin Keegan had been exciting at Newcastle with his attacking brand of football. He'd revolutionised Fulham to a certain extent and got them well on the way to the path to the Premier League by 2001. Um, England, though, they were incredibly lucky to even be at the Euros. They'd beat... Luxembourg home and away, which was by this point a given, but they'd failed to beat Bulgaria home and away, they'd failed to beat Sweden home and away, they would only lose one game away at Sweden, but still, draw draws are plenty, in the end, a Paul hat-trick at home to Poland was a difference, really, but the thing that got England over the line, whilst they were waiting at home, Kenneth Anderson and Henrik Larsson got the goals for Sweden in a 2-0 win over Poland, put England into the playoffs and not even got through yet. A draw would have eliminated England, a win for Poland would have eliminated England. So they're somewhat fortunate to get to the playoffs, they're somewhat fortunate to get through the playoffs. They did win 2-0 at Hamden, but they did also lose at Wembley as well. Get to the the Euros in the Netherlands and Belgium and England had started like they never really had before. Obviously we had France in 1982 to an extent where England started off very well. Usually slow starters to tournaments, but here it was incredible. Paul Scholes, Stephen Manaman, England were 2-0 up in absolutely no time. And then of course it's over before it begins really. Luis Figo scores an absolute howitzer. Portugal win 3-2. Um, and then you've got Stephen Manaman injured, Tony Adams injured, Darren Anderson already been injured beforehand, of course. So there you've got Dennis Wise playing left wing. Um, the left-sided problem um, fully entrenched in this era, wasn't it? And um, although, despite that, Alan Shearer scores his final winning goal for England in a game against Germany to keep the heat on for the final game against Romania and injuries again. David Seam gets injured in the warm-up for the third game against Romania. Nigel Martin in. Nigel Martin would play in this game that we're going to cover today as well. And the only thing giving them hope, really, Alan Shearer and Michael Owen score against Romania and Shearer's what would be his final game because England bow out 3-2. Phil Neville happens final minute injury uh, final minute penalty and uh, Romania score it England go out and so we get to the World Cup qualifiers Wembley's final game Germany <laughs> crowning it and um, it would turn out to be Kevin Keegan's final game after Didi Hamann scores England would then lose 1-0 they'd 
lose their manager as well. Kevin Keegan resigns in the toilets. <laughs> they draw nil-nil to Finland some days later. And Peter Taylor is installed as a caretaker and makes David Beckham captain. And then you get the takeover of England's first ever foreign manager after that. Sven Goran Eriksson keeping David Beckham on as captain. And then you get a, some sort of experimentation in the friendlies. You get rare England games through Goekio, Gavin McCann, Michael Ball, most notably Chris Powell as well, gets a few runouts in qualifiers as well. And in amongst, England turned four competitive winless games into into five, in five games, into five competitive wins. Finland were beaten by a superb David Beckham goal at, uh, at Anfield. Al- Albania were beaten in Tirana. And England had an impressive away win in Athens against Greece with, of course, a David Beckham free kick. So before Sven-Goran Eriksson took charge, England were bottom of the group. Germany had two wins from two. Finland had played a game more um, with four points. So did Greece with three points. Albania had two games. They won one of them, lost the other. And England were rock bottom on, uh, on one point. So we get to the close season. England are just beating Greece in Athens, as we said. 2001-2 season is about to take shape. And after these three wins on the spin you've got England now in second place Greece just slightly behind them six points from six games Finland four points from six games Albania have lost four games in a row so they're out of it England have got 10 points they've got a game in hand on Germany Germany lead though by six points and the next game September the 1st 2001 you may remember it well Olympia Stadion Munich Germany versus England Carsten Janka scores early and um, it would be a game, really, there where if Germany won, they would have qualified. And he scores early, I think it's like the sixth or seventh minute, and you think, it's happening again. I distinctly remember this game. Um, it was, I'm pretty sure it was a Friday night or a Saturday night. Um, you think Germany are just going to whitewash England again, although obviously Euro 2000 is the exception here, rather than the rule. There has been uh, defeats in qualification Earlier on in this campaign, you've got obviously 1990, 1996, scarred by those memories, of course, some older people scarred by 1982, 1970 as well. But, but, Michael Owen scores a hat-trick, Stephen Gerrard scores from distance and sing it with me, Heskey makes it five. And um, this huge goal swing with the game in hand as well, leaves England with um, things in their own hands. So... Michael Owen and Robbie Fowler continuing this weird form of uh, only Liverpool players scoring for England. They score against Albania late on to uh, win that match. So going into the final game, England have a plus six goal difference average advantage rather on Germany going into the final day. England, of course, at home to Greece. Germany at home to Finland, which may seem like a gimme, but Finland got a point out of Germany back in Helsinki. England now, of course, only needed to match Germany's result and hope there's not some chicanery over there in Gelsenkirchen with a with a huge goal swing and barring any of that, say like a, a seven, a, an 8-0 win for Germany and a 1-0 win for England, for example, England will be in the World Cup regardless. So without further ado, we may as well get to the match, hadn't we? England start off with... Um, Quite a bizarre looking 11 looking back now. We've got Nigel Martin in goal, which deputising for David Seaman at the time, who uh, would miss quite a lot of um, quite a lot of this season for injury. I think Richard Wright may have played more games in Arsenal's net than him, but we've got Gary Neville at right back, Ashley Cole at left back, uh, who would become the main full-backs here with Rio Ferdinand. Playing alongside Martin Keown, 
you got a midfield four containing David Beckham, Stephen Gerrard, Paul Scholes, then Nicky Bambi on the left wing, Robbie Fowler and Emil Heskey up front. The left problem was uh, firmly advertised, but I think Nicky Bambi, obviously, I think, he's, I think his peak was probably mid to late 90s here. He was playing for Liverpool at the time here and obviously that earns him a call up and he was a very, very good player. But I think for me, the biggest problem England had was the 4-4-2. This, in English club football, we, we see a, a staggered shift, really, in the mid to late 2000s. So around this stage, with the signing of Juan Sebastian Veron, this sort of kickstarts Alex Ferguson at Manchester United using a 4-4-2 in England, but a 4-2-3-1 in Europe, and... Um, which kind of allows them to dominate the football. Obviously, they wouldn't be successful in Europe until 2008, by which point most of the teams, most of the big teams, most of the good football-playing teams are straight away from the 4-4-2. It's making a bit of a comeback now, but around this stage, we were sort of in between sort of eras. A lot of Europe had packed out midfields before. Um, they would do more with more regularity as the uh, decade went on. But as another, another um, bit of... Obviously, four two three one would necessitate a uh, deeper, deeper midfield too, with um, more attacking midfielder in front. Um, with, of course, the, the the question that was seemingly eternal was the central midfield partnerships: who would play where? Could Gerard and Lampard play together? Lampard, of course, he'd made his debut in ninety nine. I think it was Belgium off the top of my head, um, but here he was in and out of the squad. Paul Scholes and Stephen Gerrard were the usual midfield partnership. We'd see, of course, Scholes be partnered with uh, Nicky Butt, Manchester United teammate, in the uh, in the World Cup going forward, which kind of ruins the uh, the result of this game. But we all know this game, don't we? Um, because of Stephen Gerrard's injury, obviously, by 2004, Scholes would be shifted out onto the left. Heskey played on the left at times. Trevor Sinclair, as well, shifted out onto the left. And um, it was this problem that would have been fixed with a... Obviously, David Beckham in this game, which we'll see, a man possessed. He could play free roll quite organically and needed when needed. And that necessitates or rather makes a 4-2-3-1 for England more positive for me because Stephen Gerrard, Paul Scholes and Frank Lampard, three world-class midfielders, no doubt. I'm not entering into a debate. The three world-class midfielders, they're all got some semblance around this time up until probably around... 2008, where Scholes drops off a little bit. They're all attacking midfielders. You'd want them more in a 10, Scholes and Lampard especially. So it doesn't make any sense for Scholes to be on the left. Gerard and Lampard in the middle, because who's the anchor there? Who's the six? Obviously, that is a problem with a 4-4-2, um, especially 4-4-2 with three or four, rather. Quite attacking midfielders, if you count Beckham in that as well. Of course, Owen Hargreaves will come along. But he wouldn't be used with as reg- as regularly as Gerard Scholes, Lampard, of course. So we get to the game with Wembley's long form demolition. This game's been played at Old Trafford. You do have a bit of a tour of England, really. You'd see games being played at St Mary's, Anfield. Not as much so at Anfield. We'd have the Finland game there. You'd have the a Uruguay friendly there. I think um, most notable for Peter Crouch's numbers being wrong on the front and the back. Uh, that's probably the best <laughs> memories of an Anfield, Liverpool, uh, an Anfield England game. Obviously, go up to the northeast a fair bit with uh, St James's Park, hosted a, a qualifying for the Euros. After this, you've got a stadium light used quite often. 
as well. Uh, White Hart Lane, for example, I think got used around this time. So Old Trafford, though, was a proxy home for the qualifiers, really, until about 2007, the end of the 2006-07 season. Greece, the opponents, we've not mentioned them yet, but Greece, the opponents, they'd never scored in England. They hadn't even won an away game, of course, in England. They're not scored. You need to score, don't you? And they were coming off a 5-1 loss. Meanwhile, England, of course, coming off a 5-1 win. Greece had lost to Finland 5-1. Um, but in versus omens, Greece had uh, shut out England 0-0 in Athens to keep them out of Euro 1984. Bobby Robson was in... Uh, was in attendance here for that one. Um, the full game of this is available on YouTube. I implore you to seek it out. And England, look, it took just 20 seconds to capitalise and a bit of Greek nerves um, in the first knockings with Paul Scholes bursting forward. You do have Fowler and Heskey up front, so you, I think you probably need a Scholes or a Gerrard to have the mobility to join the attack. You do have Bambi and Bambi drifting inwards a little bit. David Beckham would too. Um, more so as the game went on, really. And uh, this match is really just uh, landmarked by whenever David Beckham took a free kick. His uh, free kick abilities were tested twice in the first seven minutes. And you could tell we're in peak Beckham period here because the roar of anticipation from the crowd, home crowd as well, Old Trafford, which is still at Man United here, knowing that he was essentially a cheat code. And he was just this game was just showing how good he was from dead balls. And actually now, for me, how underrated he truly was. I think when he gets out wide and he crosses the ball, his, his long-range passing wasn't excellent. His corners were slightly shoddy in this game, but his determination, his effort into this game, obviously he was playing like a man-possessed, which we'll get onto, onto later on. He just controlled this game. But mainly his free kicks were just about drifting either side of where he wanted them or where they could have gone to uh, score a goal and um, he was getting closer and closer as the match goes on. At the other end of the pitch though, England's defence looks absolutely all over the shop. It's a makeshift defence by this point. Martin Keown and Rio Ferdinand at centre half, not on the same page, not played a great deal together. They'd played 90 minutes together once in the reverse fixture in Athens and they'd played roughly, I went and checked, they'd played 166 minutes across four, four friendlies. So there you go. Ashley Young was... Um, Young to the England team too, having made his international debut in March. This was his seventh cap. Gary Neville probably the uh, most experienced of the lot. But I don't think Gary Neville was... He's known for his overlap. Um, and I think his first overlap was 37 minutes in. Uh, something that he would do with abundance with David Beckham uh, for Manchester United. Um, obviously the England team's not as structurally um, good as Manchester United. But Gary Neville was probably worried about the defence to an extent. Um, as you see, Angelos Karastayas pinning back Ashley Cole at points because Ashley Cole is a, a bombing on fullback, isn't he? Really, a bit like Gary Neville. Gary Neville's attacking prowess seems to be forgotten now, but he could cross a ball probably as good as anybody, apart from David Beckham, of course, in the Premier League at this stage. He was absolutely fantastic at that. So, I mean, like David Beckham, really, Emil Heskey's underrated. He was defensive qualities were massively underrated. He was showing those qualities. He's showing. He does get moved out onto the left at half time, but he's he's going into the channels, he's moving into the channels, is fantastic. And um England were not really pressuring, they had that bit of pressure, you got pressure from free kicks, but by twenty minutes 
they've not really had a clear cut opportunity and it is Greece and it's Angelos Karasteos who funders one over who goes the closest and yes it is that Karasteos who we'll see more of in the next few years or so wouldn't we and uh, Greece will line up in a kind of like a 3-4-3 with what you'd call inside forwards which Karasteos was on the right against Ashley Cole it made a mess of England's defensive structures really when needed it could fold into a 3-5-2 with Karasteos centrally um, or a three-six-one with uh, if on the rare occasions that Ashley Cole and Gary Neville could get forward, Karasteas and your man on the left wing, Karagounis, uh, I think, would um, track back, and they were very good at doing that. It was quite a young Greek team. Greece, it's mentioned in commentary by Martin Tyler, were doing very well at the uh, under twenty-one level. Of course, we'd know three years later that that would come to a head at the Euros, which um, was a competition that England were fav- favoured for, but obviously not. Uh, Greece, though, they had the better chances, really. Zagarakis stung Nigel Martin's gloves um, at the other end as well. They were quite solid. Nikos Dabizas, a familiar face, of course, to those in uh, to those in England. He was having a great game. He had his head on absolutely everything in this first half. And um, finally, England. What well, was coming, the goal was coming. England had gone behind before. They'd gone behind to Finland and Germany. Won both of those games, we can't forget. Those games, though, featured an England goal before half-time. Whilst the other game that they went behind in in this qualification campaign, they didn't equalise before half-time and lost. That was the Germany game at uh, Wembley's final game, a 1-0 loss there. And um, Greece go behind through Karasteas, of course, arrowing a uh, shot into the bottom corner. England's only chances by this point had been two David Beckham free kicks, really. He did give England a bit of a kick up the arse. It gave the... Uh, the fans a bit of a kick up the arse getting behind them, but Greece, you'd expect them to fold a little bit. They were composed in possession. They were happy to play the ball around in the knowledge, really, that their 3-4-3 system was vastly superior to uh, whatever England were doing. Heskey was drifting out. He was moving around a little bit more, tried to get into the game, showing his bit of strength and his persistence. And he got a cross, which was prodded a little bit wide, which was the closest England really came in the first half. He did deserve to stay on and it was Nicky Bambi in the end who uh, who was sacrificed and Heskey moved out onto the left as Andy Cole came in. Heskey does play a couple of games at the World Cup and that just really kind of accentuates a left wing problem for England around this time. And again, playing the 4 2 3 one may have uh, alleviated that to an extent. I think Nicky Bambi could have had a bit of um, joy in that World Cup playing left wing, but as we know, he doesn't play. Andy Cole would uh, come on to provide a bit of an impetus to uh, in front of goal. It would almost see England matching Greece pound for pound, really, with Heskey. He would go out into the channels when he was playing as a number nine, but when he was out on the left wing, he would drift in a little bit more. So it's almost like he's playing three. And the only problem there is would Ashley Cole and um, Gary Neville go forward to make it a three for three almost. But we see really that uh, David Beckham was just given a free roll really here. He's coming across more onto the left. He was central for a lot of the second half here. He's trying to imprint himself on the game. And um, his third free kick goes close to troubling Nicopolidis, but just just slightly wide there. Um, Andy Cole, the fourth Man United player now on the pitch, forces another save. And within two minutes of the second half, England's tempo, ridiculously high tempo. They had more shots than in the first half than in two minutes and then Beckham has a fourth free kick slightly over they were ominous signs for Greece but yet they still had that element of danger going forward Karagounis forced to save off um, 
off Nigel Martin, Karastaeus was always getting a good pull on Ashley Cole, who's playing right wing. Let's not forget, not allowing him to get forward. Paul Scholes couldn't get forward. He rarely ventured forward besides that instance, 20 seconds in, and he did get, um, he latched onto a cross, but his shot wasn't powerful enough in the end. And I thought Scholes, renowned for his passing, I thought his patch, passing was scratchy all game, really. And um, Beckham, he was the one, the one, I think, Really good long ball from Skulls finds Beckham on the right-hand side and he, Beckham delivers a low drive, which is saved quite comfortably by Nicopolidis. And it's at this spot that the uh, the shot stat flashes up on the screen. A huge 9-9 um, it was. And I'm pretty sure having counted Skulls' shot would have been a shot. And um, there was one chance before which Heskey provided that went past the push and got Andy Cole's shot. I'm pretty sure that six of England's nine shots were from David Beckham. And he was barely a right midfielder here as he was. He's more central. It was becoming more of a 4-3-3 with Heskey going inside. Greece, as a result, were getting less and less of the ball, less and less chances. They weren't, with the bodies in the middle of the park, they weren't retaining the ball as well. The goalkeeper was getting, looking slightly nervous with his control too as well. There was a couple of instances they did that. But just as that happens, you then get the your brief interludes where Karagounis is found in absolutely acres of room in the England box, forces a double save. And this is when Teddy Sheringham gets gets flashed up on the screen. He's getting ready. The 35-year-old comes on for Robbie Fowler, who didn't really have a great game in front of goal for England. Didn't have a much of a chance. He had a, he got the ball once in the box, from what I could remember, and um, ran it out of play, unfortunately. And with Teddy Sheringham's first touch, David Beckham finds him from a free kick. Teddy Sheringham glances it in. Only his third competitive game since Euro 2000, which he didn't play in either and Old Trafford was rocking and for a brief moment it could have been 2-0 but that goal hurls England back to the top of the group 0-0 it was in Gelsenkirchen at this point unfortunately the good feeling is quashed instantly Nicolidis pokes one in instantly played onside by Gary Neville and the, the fever pitch ramps up once more if anything it was acts as a slingshot of the atmosphere really to uh England fans were high after the goal, dropped considerably and then went even higher. And from here, with 20 minutes to play, we see David Beckham growing even more into the game as if it could even be done even further, man-possessed. At the best of times, he was on an absolute other level here. With Gerrard and Scholes in this midfield three now, as we see it, you've got the best, one of the best three longer passes of the ball in this time that you'd want. And for a game that would go down to the wire, and it would, obviously, Germany was still pushing. You get brief flashes on, on YouTube there on the, on the full game with uh, Antony Amy's goal, living a child, charmed life here. It's nil-nil there. It would finish nil-nil. Um, they were turning the screw. They'd hit the bar a couple of times. And um, England here were playing that long ball game and getting more and more desperate. And Gary Neville... Even in this 4-3-3, Gary Neville pushing up almost as a right wing back with Ashley Cole as well doing likewise on the other end would have been perfect. Uh, David Beckham almost like an auxiliary six. It was uh, bizarre. Um, he was tackling everywhere. He was mopping up. At this point, we were matching Greece 3-4-3 uh, really. If you're playing Beckham as a as a six or a five, essentially, he was, he was, he was absolutely everywhere. He's one of his greatest matches in any shirt, really. The most influential I've seen him in any shirt. But England, because of this, I think they've grown less influential in front of goal. They barely provide a shot around this time. And the closest they consistently were getting from was from Beckham's free kick. Uh, they'd hit the side netting in one instance. They had a penultimate one on 90 minutes, went wide. And then the final one was won 
92 minutes, 12 seconds. Teddy Sheringham fouled kind of softly in the air, really, when you think of the game then. Um, and as we know, David Beckham curls it in the reverse into the top left-hand corner, digging England out of a hole of a bad performance, which we forget now because, obviously, the moment of David Beckham, arms spread wide in front of the Stretford end, Stretford end going mental. England, I think quite a lot of the fans still thought we, England needed a third goal. Um, obviously, this gets announced over the tannoy that uh, Germany and Finland is nil-nil and an even bigger roar. Uh, greets that and then obviously the big celebrations Beckham here we see a player firmly in his peak I think between this, the treble year where he provided assist after assist after assist which he discussed a couple of weeks ago and then here in, up until 2002 this was a three year spell where he took games by the scruff of the neck he was extremely influential and here I think he was at his most influential at his best really carrying an England team that um, would properly get in front of goal and he was provided the impetus he easily had half more than half of the England shots on goal and obviously the last one was the most influential the most iconic and well we shortlist of England moments here from from 66 onwards because obviously from before 66 it would mainly just be the uh, World Cup win there so in 1970 you've got the Bobby Moore tackle on Pele which is in a losing effort let's not forget as well so in 1982 you've got the goal after a minute against France in a 3-1 win you've got the Gary Lineker hat-trick um, to keep England in the World Cup in 86. In 1990, to be fair, it picks up a little bit. and got uh, David Platt's superb volley against Belgium. We've got Gaza's tears in the semi-final. And then Gaza would return six years later. It's got that iconic goal against Scotland. The, one of the best displays around this time since 66, you might think. 4-1 against the Netherlands in the final group game. We've got Stuart Pearce's penalty redemption against Spain in the quarterfinals Alan Shearer's goal to an extent in the semi-final Michael Owen's goal in the in the last 16 against Argentina two years later and a couple of iconic moments from this qualification campaign you got obviously the free kick here the 5-1 against Germany you've got Beckham's revenge a year later with the penalty win in Argentina and then it slows down really for during the Sven time you've got obviously Wayne Rooney has a superb year as in 2004 which I think you can probably pinned down as being iconic and then nothing really until for me at least until Daniel Sturridge's winner against Wales which was a feel-good moment briefly obviously it was a disastrous tournament and of course then it picks back up with the World Cup and Euros most recently Kane's performance against Panama the penalty shootout against Colombia Trippier the free kick against Croatia the and then in the Euros the wins over Germany and Denmark Germany especially because that was a, a huge sliding doors moments, Thomas Muller chance essentially, and then Luke Shaw scoring in the final, I still remember that, obviously, vividly, um, the goal and the wave of optimism of finally winning something obviously doesn't happen, but those are, for me, since 1966, for the past 55 years, those are the iconic moments, few and far between, um, but coming back now and in, obviously in fits and starts in the early to mid 90s and more recently, but to bridge that gap, we'll uh, we'll have a look at how England did afterwards. Um, spoiler, it's not pretty at all. <laughs> we'll uh, be back after this short break. Welcome back. Optimism was high in the spring of 2002, but then, of course, disaster after disaster happens. Gary Neville goes down with an injury. Danny Mills replaces him at right back. Stephen Gerrard goes down with injury. Trevor Sinclair replaces him, his plane turned around in midair, 
famously as he uh, flies from Japan to England then but straight back to Japan because he's needed for the tournament. David Beckham breaks his metatarsal in a Champions League match against Deportivo to the extent of his importance really that it is a national crisis. There's almost wall-to-wall news coverage about it. Obviously England's most important player but he would be back. He'd start every game at the World Cup. Perhaps short fitness but uh, England were on the face of it, rather disappointing, the draw against Sweden, the draw against Nigeria, uh, which means even the win against Argentina, which was fortunate anyway, Michael Owen took a bit of a tumble there, probably want a penalty, was it? Um, and then John Motson told us to hold the glasses and plates at home, Beckham's penalty ensures that we could smash them, uh, 1-0 win, most importantly revenge, the feel-good iconic moment, um, which we discussed earlier on before the break, and it's easy to think now that they should have prioritised winning um, against Nigeria to get to the top, but let's not forget it was a group of death. Nigeria were a great team. Argentina too, they were both out. Sweden were one of the better teams in the world really at this stage, probably a top 10 team you'd probably think now. Um, and then you get Denmark and Brazil in the, in the knockouts as opposed to Senegal and Turkey. Either way, it'd be Brazil in the semi-finals and Brazil were, to me, deserving winners. England do get the joint best knockout win. Um, in a tournament here, obviously not now, but then in a 3-0 win against Denmark. And that probably that first half was probably the only great bit of football England played. You've got Michael Owen, obviously, scores against Brazil to have England lead in Brazil. One of the greatest Brazil teams going. Um, and then you obviously Beckham jumps over a tackle, a rare pole moment from him in an England shirt around this time. Rivaldo scores on the counter of Ronaldinho, as we know. His free kick undoes all the hard work, and I'm sure we all remember if you're from England, that isn't. If you're a supporter of England, being sat in the school halls, the assembly halls, watching that game at 8am and then having to do a whole day of school. If I could, I would have been at the uh, the doctor's office there in, in the bowels of the school wanting a day off, but uh, regardless, couldn't happen. So what about Greece? We've not really spoken about them in this podcast, but of course, Greece would win something in this era. England wouldn't, of course. Euro 2004 happens. England bow out in the quarterfinals, as was to be a consistent failure, consistent hallmark of Sven's time with the golden generation to Portugal in 04, to Portugal in 2006, through various degrees of reasoning injuries to certain players, Rooney, Beckham, Owen, a red card for Rooney against Portugal in 06, but still penalties. But Greece, they would beat Portugal not once, but twice, <laughs> bookending the Euros in 2004 and um, doing something that England couldn't do around this time, haven't done since, didn't do before, and that's win a trophy, um, obviously with the exception of 1966. So then you get, after the 2006 World Cup, disappointment for England, which for, on a personal level, which was the time where I thought that England were finally coming good but then obviously with hindsight you think Gerard and Lampard in a midfield too doesn't work never going to work needed a to sacrifice some player somewhere and for me with Owen injured in the Sweden game that was the perfect opportunity Rooney up top on his own Gerard or Lampard either one could do it but Lampard probably more so at that point plays a number 10 and then you've got Beckham before his injury even right, even without his injury put Stuart down in there, might not be fantastic, but it's hard work in Joe Cole on the other flank. Owen Hargreaves, Gerard in a double pivot. The defence speaks for itself, really, even with 
Jack. Gary Neville, Ferdinand Terry, Ashley Cole, superb defence, best defence on earth, really, in the international sense. And then Paul Robertson in net. That would be my team if I was the England manager then. In fact, I might crack open Football Manager 2006 after this and <laughs> play a bit. But that 4-4-2 myth, that 4-4-2 sort of tactical tweak would remain through McLaren. Who superseded? Who succeeded? Uh, Sven to disastrous ends. Really, the first failure to qualify for a tournament in a generation for Euro two thousand and eight. Capella, who relied on it for Milan in the early nineties, it was very successful for Milan. One of the best club teams going in nineteen ninety four season with the unde- undefeated season and and the uh, and the Champions League win over Barcelona obviously didn't have the players at his disposal disposal here he was 20 years older um England toiled to the the last 16 admittedly through the goal line technology of Frank Lampard's goal not being counted against Germany but still Germany with a better team Capello leaves before the Euros over under a cloud after John Terry's court case of the racial abuse on Anton Ferdinand which also leads to Rio Ferdinand not playing for the England squad anymore so then you've got a huge gap. Um, Roy Hodgson comes in, tries to instill some uh, international management experience, which Capello, even though a good manager is what he was, didn't have any international tournament experience. Hodgson had taken the mighty Switzerland to the 94 World Cup, almost took Finland to a Euros before their first tournament in 2021. Um, seemed, in the FA's eyes, the perfect manager. To the fans' eyes, it was probably more Harry Redknapp, um, probably discounted because of his own court cases with tax evasion in the early part of 2012. But Roy Hodgson would take England to the quarterfinals to the brink of a first semi-final since Terry Venables in 96. But unfortunately, again, the story was penalties, Italy. Um, something which still rings in the ear today, doesn't it? But for a different tournament. Then embarrassments of a group stage exit in 2014, which I think still now is kind of... Kind of acceptable. It was a group of deaf. Italy and Uruguay were better teams. But Costa Rica also went through, so there's that as well. Um, there's, there's less less forgivable is the knockout to eliminate to uh, Iceland in the last 16 of the Euros in 2016, which calls time on Hodgson as England manager. And through a brief one-match spell for it, Sam Allardyce would get renewed hope South, in Southgate. The semi-finals in 2018 with a patchwork squad, really. And then more confidence, more tactical ingenuity, really. You got the 3-5-2 in 2018. No plan B. 2021, you've evolved a plan B. You've got a 3-4-3. You've got a 4-3-3, something that had England had that under Sven. Dare say they might have been dominant, really, with the players they had. But under Sven, you had the players, but not the tactics. Under Southgate, at first you didn't have the players, but you had the tactics. Now you've got the tactics and you had the players. It meant a semi-final in 2018 but and the final in 2021, the first for 55 years. And of course, as we know, penalties, Italy, heartbreak. Speaking of England heartbreak, England won, Poland won from 1973. That is our next Great Games episode. We'll be delving more into... Life after 1966 for the England team, of course, a very different way to end a qualification campaign, despite it still being a draw at home. We'll discuss that more next week, of course. We will be on Patreon five days a week and on the Sports Social Podcast Network three days a week with any other 
podcasts and of course YouTube with what if scenarios seven days a week. But until then, sit it. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.